The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in the hundred thousand myriad Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. So good to see so many of you today. We're celebrating Buddha's Enlightenment Day a day early, and I think that allows more of us to come. Uh, Given that it was a Sunday, we decided on today. And uh, I was going to talk uh, further about the Buddha's Enlightenment, although, um, honestly, the scriptures and uh, the dedication that Reverend Master Mayan made and so on really says it all. But uh, there are a few aspects of the Buddha's Enlightenment, the teaching around that, that I'd like to bring out today. Of course, we're celebrating and expressing gratitude. Um, and these uh, during these darkest days of the year, um, so we, as, as many religious traditions do, decorate our, hall, our halls and offer lights. Um, and actually, as in some Buddhist scriptures, such as the Abhatamsaka scripture, there are descriptions of Buddha lands with jewel trees and lights of many colors. So I think we're very much in keeping with, in harmony with uh, what many people are celebrating, but also um, bringing out some aspects of the Buddhist teaching. These uh, represent the enlightenment of the Buddhas and their virtues, and of course, those virtues that we ourselves cultivate in our training. So the Buddha, of course, um, I think he was about 20, 30 years old or so at the time, after striving horribly um, with ascetic practices for six years, decided he wasn't getting anywhere with that, as you know, the story of the Buddha, most of you, and um, finally accepted some food and sustenance, started to feel better, felt like he was getting to be getting on the right path and went to find a lovely big uh, tree to sit under that provided shelter um, a passing um, fellow offered him some fresh grass to sit on so he made a vow to sit still as long as he it took to uh, fully realize the truth to awaken to the truth and actually the stories of the Buddha say that um, even in past lives, the life before this one um, of Shakyamuni Buddha, Gautama, he had made vows to be reborn. There was merit from a previous life and vows there that um, that he had made to um, come to you know, help rescue sentient beings from suffering. So he was reminded of this vow as well, which motivated him to sit beneath the Bodhi tree. And, of course, the fundamental teachings of Buddhism that we follow today are what the Buddha directly saw and experienced for himself. They're not theoretical things. They're not just ideas. Um, He himself personally came to realize, after a night of deep meditation and struggle, the Four Noble Truths, the characteristics of our existence, dukkha, suffering, anicca, um, impermanence, anatta, the fact that there's no permanent substantial self that we can attach to and that the nirvana was a possibility. 
and the wheel of dependent origination, how we perpetuate our suffering and how that keeps going unless we sit still enough to turn that around. He taught that all beings have the seed of Buddhahood within them and can realize the causes of their suffering for themselves and awaken to the truth that he found. So he entered into a universal truth, not something that was just his personal possession. It was something that he knew from his own experience was um, there within all beings and all things. And that's an important aspect of talking about the Buddha's enlightenment. I think that it has very practical implications and teaching for us. So that came out of his direct experience. And why we, in this tradition, in the Zen traditions, put a lot of emphasis on experiencing for yourself and trusting and having faith in that, that you can know for yourself these truths. Well, I brought this print along because um, I happened to see it in a monk's giveaway recently, and I love it. I've got a small version of it on my altar, and um, it might be Nepalese, I'm not quite sure. But here we see the Buddha uh, during the night of his enlightenment um, with the forces, the hordes of Mara, tempting him all around. If you look closely, you'll see some pretty amazing, powerful, ugly beings Um, representing really all the um, greeds, angers, all the passions of our karmic impulses that he was struggling with. And, of course, one has to remember that this, although this happened during one night, obviously it was the result of years, maybe lives of training that brought this to fruition. But I find this very, a very inspiring image Uh, You know, the Buddha had a a hard time. It was challenging. It wasn't easy for him. And uh, I think if we we feel like we're having a bad day, you know, it just helps to remember what what he was going through. It shows to me the importance of sitting still in the midst of all conditions and also of having confidence in our practice of meditation and following the precepts. Conversion of the passions happens when we sit still with whatever is arising without grasping after feelings and thoughts and things and also as not pushing them away. And we have to allow our Buddha nature to teach us and this can only happen if we're aware of the effects of indulging or repressing thoughts and feelings and so on. So by sitting still with feelings, for example, we can see them for what they are, just feelings just one of the skandhas that make up this human existence. And we can come to know for ourselves the harm that comes from following uh, angers, frustrations, irritations, fear, for example, and loosen our grip on them, let them go as they naturally would. So the Buddha nature makes use of everything, including adversity. And so this image of sitting still and having... The, you know, obviously the tremendous struggle dissolve into um, something useful, something that, um, uh, an energy that he could help others with is, is for me a very inspiring image. Here you've got beings with wheels of fire, swords, javelins, um, um, all kinds of distractions, um, images of beautiful Um, enticing young ladies but also here's one that shows 
the young woman and then getting older and eventually very aged um, and perhaps losing that same attraction. So the um, awareness of impermanence that, again, however beautiful we might be in our youth, it's not, we're not going to be that way all the time. That beauty has to go more inward and shine from a different place. Here we've got, I, I believe this is an image of um, uh, perhaps someone from his own clan, the warrior clan, becoming a, the enticement to become a ruler. He was, of course, the son of a king, and his um, family would have liked him to be a king. Um, all kinds of enticements, some seemingly noble things, some very obviously base things. Um, today, you know, in our world, um, we could, you know, put our own images in there, I think, you know, could be uh, maybe your phone going off constantly <laughs> um, with, you know, not allowing you to have any peace or, um, gosh, all the many things that could, quote, assail us. Um, so it's important to remember that um, Mara is, you know, represents that which tempts us away from our sitting place. Uh, from our faith and our refuge in our true nature and the merits of our training. So, although sometimes Mara is personified as a deity, in actual fact, uh, he, he, she, it represents something um, within ourselves. And I, I find it helpful sometimes to think of Mara as a being, but, but I know that it's not, um, that he doesn't have any um, ultimate reality. And in fact, whenever Mara is fully recognized for what he is, he disappears. He kind of shrinks away into the woodwork. And there are many really good stories in the life of the Buddha where um, Mara is coming there and, you know, with very convincing, consoling words when the Buddha is really struggling with something. And, um, and, and the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. You know, don't bug me now. <laughs> and he just... Mara just disappears because once he's recognized, and I find that very, very helpful too, um, we don't have to beat him up. We don't have to do anything in particular but be very still and be aware this impulse leads to harm. This is potentially very dangerous. You know? and, um, and once he's recognized, he doesn't have any power. Yeah. Mara's army, of course, all of these represent the doubts uh, the passions of greeds, hatred, delusion, mocking, all sorts of um, whatever might um, you know, try to move the Buddha away from his sitting place and his resolve to realize the truth. And, interestingly, as he's sitting still, these things have real, no, no real power over him. Eventually, he realizes the insubstantiality of them and all these forces of Mara turn into flowers in this particular image. So, again, very inspiring. I'll read you a little bit here about um, the Buddhist experience. This is from uh, a book that m- many of you know about, The Light of Asia, written in eight- published in 1879 by Sir Edwin Arnold, a British man who lived in Asia for many years, obviously had, was very sympathetic to Buddhism. And here... Um, I will read you a bit of this poem, which is very dear to us. So then fell the night, even as our master sate under that tree. But he who is the prince of darkness, Mara, knowing this was Buddha who should deliver men, or beings, and now the hour when he should find the truth 
and save the worlds, gave unto all his evil powers command. Wherefore there trooped from every deepest pit the fiends who war with wisdom and the light, Arati, Trishna, Raga, and their crew of passions, horrors, ignorances, lusts, the brood of gloom and dread, all hating Buddha, seeking to shake his mind. Nor knoweth one, not even the wisest, how those fiends of hell battled that night to keep the truth from Buddha, sometimes with terrors of the tempest, blasts of demon armies clouding all the wind, with thunder and with blinding lightning flung in jagged javelins of purple wrath from splitting skies, sometimes with wiles and words fair-sounding mid hushed leaves and softened airs from shapes of witching beauty, wanton songs, whispers of love, sometimes with royal allures of proffered rule, sometimes with mocking doubts, making truth vain. But whether these befell without and visible, or whether Buddha strove with fell spirits in his inmost heart, judge ye, I write what, what ancient books have writ. And really we don't see a separation between whether it's out there or whether it's in there, we still have to sit still with it. Um, to be able to see the light and allow these things to fall away and not become slaves to them. Dramatic, perhaps, but there are times when this does happen in our lives and we're really struggling with something so we can take inspiration from the Buddha's experience. And, um, you know, maybe some of this sounds familiar. Maybe we've had times when it seems like everything is not going the right way or not going our way, right? (laughs) Um, I've certainly had those times in my life, you know, and uh, I think one can doubt one's training at such times, Um, but it's very important to examine carefully that that could just be thoughts and feelings based on one's expectations. In my own experience, continuing to sit still, take refuge in the Sangha is the most important thing because eventually... Uh, these some of these things just fall away, and you realize, you know what, that was all, you know, my karmic expectations, and actually, um, the reality is something quite different, and usually something, you know, that works and something much better. So, um, yeah, you can put your own, your own um, little images of Mara's forces in there. So, just to read a little more of this, the solid earth shuddered as if one laid flame to her gaping wounds. The torn black air was full of whistling wings, of screams and yells, of evil faces peering, of vast fronts terrible and majestic. Lords of hell, who from a thousand limbos led their troops to tempt the master. So, many, many things pulling at him to leave his sitting place. But Buddha heeded not, sitting serene with perfect virtue, walled as is a stronghold by its gates and ramps. Also the sacred tree, the Bodhi tree, amid that tumult stirred not, but each leaf glistened as still as when on moonlit eves no zephyr spills the glittering gems of dew. 
for all this clamor raged outside the shade spread by those cloistered stems. So there's Sir Ed- Edwin Arnold um, with his beautiful uh, rendition of this in poetry. So the Buddha is sitting in the earth witness posture there. You can see one hand touching the ground, the other in meditation, grounding himself, calling upon the earth to witness his resolve to realize the truth fully, as well as calling upon the virtues of his training. Something I read, I found that particular aspect of it very helpful. I appreciate again the confidence that this demonstrates. This is not pride, and I think sometimes we can mistake that. Confidence in our practice is not pride, but that but having faith and trust in the practice and its merits in our own practice, our own virtues and the merits of our practice over the years, not allowing the the toe of doubt to get in the door, as it were. Yeah. So um, I think this is an important aspect of the the sitting still. It's not blocking anything out, um, and it's not wrestling with anything, but it's. Um, just being aware and letting things pass and having the confidence. So he called upon the virtues of his training to, gu- to guard him. In some accounts that I've read, uh, it said that the earth goddess caused a flood which overcame and drowned out the forces of Mara. And I rather like this version, as in my experience it shows how by sitting still with the passions, our tendencies toward ignorance our doubts about Buddha nature, they eventually dissolve into the cleansing water of the spirit. We see their insubstantiality again, and the purifying waters of compassion can then flow freely through us and then to all beings. So there, the, there's something about the water that I, the images of the water that I particularly found resonated with my experience. Well, there is, of course, the, the final enlightenment after the struggle with Mara, after conquering the hordes of Mara. The Buddha, of course, as you may have all read, um, has the experience of seeing all of his former lives and the karmic tendencies throughout those lives, hundreds of them. And then he has uh, the experience of seeing the lives of all beings, the... the um, rising and falling of all the systems in the universe. Very profound, of course, um, teachings. And finally, the cause of sorrow. The Four Noble Truths and the way of cessation from suffering. All of these truths, again, of dependent origination, all of the uh, reasons for suffering uh, came to him that night. Until finally when the morning star rose in the morn- in the, the, after that long night, um, he, has, he declares a peon of joy. Many a house of life hath held me, seeking ever him who wrought these prisons of the senses. Sorrow fraught, sore was my ceaseless strife. But now, thou builder of this tabernacle, thou, I know thee, Never shalt thou build again these walls of pain, if you like this, this house of self, the selfish self. 
nor raise the roof-tree of deceits, nor lay fresh rafters on the clay. Broken thy house is, and the ridge-pole split. Delusion fashioned it. Safe pass I thence, deliverance to obtain. And of course he sat for quite some days afterwards with, you know, absorbing all of this. So this isn't all happening just in one night. And, you know, as it said, uh, for a time he wasn't quite sure whether anybody would understand his teaching and was not inclined to go out and teach after that. But it said that the the gods, the heavenly beings came and, and said, please, please, there are people who are capable of understanding. Please um, go and, and help the world. And eventually, through his mind's eye, he began to see, yes, there are people who can understand. And here we are today. There have been many, many beings who can understand, and we're all capable of that. And we are understanding as we go. Another aspect of this, this that I thought I'd just point out is um, Great Master Dogen's teaching that training and enlightenment are one. Again, I find very, very inspiring because myself, when I think about enlightenment or as something, a goal to be achieved, I have to confess, even preparing this talk, um, you know, feelings of inadequacy and doubt, you know, and I'm thinking, whoa, this sounds familiar, <laughs> just like the fourth, you know, and again saying, hi, Mara, no thanks, Mara, I think I'll just keep going even though I feel, um, may not feel uh, uh, very good about myself, you know, it's just a feeling, let it go. Um, so, but also the fact that a, the very act of training, as Dogen points out, the choices that we make each moment, each day, to let go of greeds, angers, delusions, and we sit still with that, turn towards the precept, okay, I'm really pissed about something, I'm really angry, and I'm not going to go with it. I'm not going to become a slave to it. I'm going to just see it, sit still with it. Um, turning towards the precept, these are expressions of enlightenment itself. The training is an expression of enlightenment itself. And it really helps to, um, to remember that because we tend to think of this impossible goal. How could we ever experience what the Buddha experienced? We're all going to have our own experience, our own way that this is going to come up, usually very gradually. Um, it's not always the great gestures. It's these little moments throughout the day just gently turning within. Uh, a slight turn of the mind can make all the difference. A bow when we don't feel like it, you know. Uh, accepting something even when we, we want to push it away. These little bits of training, those are the expression of enlightenment itself. That is the enlightenment. And, uh, of course, this is a great teaching which I'm just discovering for myself. I'll be studying that for the rest of my life, of course. But very, I think very, very helpful um, as in the, the famous poem by great master Hongji, there is no mountain barrier nor river separation. Um, let's not create opposites within our minds that, that create obstacles for us, that create worries, unnecessary worry for us. And as Shakyamuni Buddha, um, in the Denkoroku great master Keizan, um, says that Shakyamuni was, is, and will be enlightened together with the whole of the great earth and all its sentient beings simultaneously. So we don't have to worry that we're maybe not doing as much good as we might be able to do in the world when we hear so, so much 
um, difficulty and trouble that people are in, um, really have to have faith in our training. And um, again, the, the story of, of Shakyamuni's enlightenment in the Denkuroku is inspiring in that way too. Yeah, he entered into that which is universal, something that he experienced everybody's enlightenment. He was enlightened together with all beings um, simultaneously. So this is a mystery, you know, the, the intellect doesn't quite grasp that, but when you begin to tap into it, it's just it's very different and, and very profound from anything that the world knows in a certain sense. And yet everybody has a taste of it, everybody has that, that seed of Buddhahood um, that we can encourage them to trust. Uh, another way of looking at this, I won't go into it too much, but last uh, summer when I was at one of our hermitages, I was reading the Shurangama scripture, the whole sutra, the big one. I hadn't read the whole thing before, and I can't say that I understood it all, but um, I was struck by the fact that the Buddha, you know, the Buddha is re- uh, instructing Venerable Ananda during this the scripture. He, Venerable Ananda got himself into some trouble, almost lost his um, celibacy vows, um, the Buddha pulled him out of it, and he's giving him some teaching on um, letting go of the attachments to the senses and their objects. And um, and there's one metaphor that he uses of a scarf with knots in it, and and he's um, t- you know describing to Ananda how to untie those knots. You have to do one at a time. You can't try to do the whole thing at once. And by um, sitting still again, essentially, to um, get to the point um, with those the knots become untangled the karmic jangles or knots become undone yeah so the Buddha says this is the patience and this is repeated throughout the sutra that's why it really struck me this is the patience the bodhisattva develops by means of samadhi or meditation the patience with the state into which no mental objects arise and I was very intrigued by that. I have to say, I, this you know merits a lot more study for me. I'm, I'm you know going to delve into it more. I can't say I fully understand that, but I think it's very significant because we do tend to try to fill that space so too much with things that um, you know we distract ourselves from that. So um, on this day of celebrating. In gratitude, Shakyamuni Buddha's enlightenment. Um, let us honor and take joy in the seed of enlightenment within all of us, each of us, all beings without exception, no matter what they're getting up to. We have to hold to that in our hearts. Let us keep patience with those little spaces of emptiness that arise, as the Buddha has found, and not try to fill them up. Yeah. Whether it's with what busyness of you know seasonal celebrations or constant engagement with social media or um, the news or whatever distraction we might be drawn to just to sit still to check ourselves hmm you know let's just give ourselves some space there is there something wanting to come forth um, I think then we can let Shakyamuni's smile come through and the light of his awakening come through and that's not separate from our own, of course. And I feel that we'll be able to step into the new year to come with a fresh perspective and allow as, yeah, as the light of our own awakened mind and heart shine more brightly for the benefit of all. And that's my talk for the day. So good to see you. I hope you have a lovely...
celebration, restful and peaceful as well as fun. <laughs>